0: I'm Matt Pikin of Blue Ridge Public Radio, and this is BPR News Presents, a community conversation on policing in Asheville. This is an edited version of a July 23rd conversation over Facebook Live with our guests, Zariah Abdul-Karim of Democracy NC, Rob Thomas of the Racial Justice Coalition, retired UNC Asheville political science professor Dr. Dwight Mullen, Buncombe County Sheriff Quentin Miller, and Rondell Lance, president of the local chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police. You can find the entire two-hour video of this forum on the Blue Ridge Public Radio Facebook page. We're going to start tonight with Zari Abdul-Karim, Rob Thomas, and Dr. Dwight Mullen. First of all, I want to ask all of you the basis of what brings you here tonight. So people who have taken to the streets all over this country and beyond have adopted the concept of defunding the police. And I want to ask each of you, where you stand on this, and more important, what defunding means to you. And Zaria, I want to start with you.
1: Thank you, Matt. Well, I feel like there's a misconception in regards to what the understanding behind defunding means, um, it doesn't mean that the money is going to go away. It just means that defunding the police with the amount that they do have currently is it outweighs what other uh, branches of government do have. So in regards specific, specifically to um, the education system as well as health and urban housing, that money that we are uh, wanting to defund could incorporate itself into other aspects of said branches of government, or city government, uh, specifically. Um, But wouldn't that in itself, it's taking money away from the police
0: and putting it toward other uses, am I correct? And that's what you're talking about. Exactly. Okay. And Rob Thomas, same to you. Where are you coming from when it comes to the concept of defunding police?
2: Defunding police to me is like a multifaceted uh, word that needs to be broken down. Um, I prefer to use the word divest from police and investing in the community, whereas we identify specific areas and specific roles that can be taken on by community members and providing training and paying said community members to do such tasks. That also equates to things that uh, funding that is unnecessarily allocated to police uh, budget, law enforcement budget, is then also reallocated in the nature that Zaria stated, to whereas as we look at, because like the justice system is within a larger ecosystem where you have housing, economics, uh, employment, healthcare, like all these things play a factor in the crime of an area. So it's like, you know, law enforcement, punitive punishment has been proven not to be the solution. Actually, it causes crime rates to go up. It causes further poverty. So it's looking at this as a as one large equation and seeing how we can reallocate some of that funding to more or less counteract some of the disparities that we're seeing prevalent today.
0: Rob, you mentioned to me when we talked that uh, policing inside public housing complexes is a particular and chronic problem. Can you elaborate on that and how what you see happening within public housing complexes, or at least your experiences with people, you know, and how that contributes to your position today.
2: Me personally, I think is I think is wrong and it needs to be transformed to whereas you know, you provide more police in the officer. I mean, more police in the area that inversely causes crime rates to go up to whereas you have officers that are in there all day and minor infractions, minor violations, minor citations are being handed out. Um, And I think that's a better solution to where we've seen models implemented in other areas, such as in California, where they utilize uh, peacemakers. And their metrics are amazing. Whereas 61% of uh, gun violence and, and crime, the rate of crime actually reduced. Whereas in our current state, whereas uh, the city of Asheville provides $650,000 combined with public housing, 250 of that comes from public housing. And that pays for nine officers' salaries to be stationed within public housing uh, pretty much throughout the whole day. Whereas we could reallocate that funding to uh, start up and transform and create a community uh, that polices itself and get that instituted. And, you know, if I have time, I could break down the uh, logics within my mind of, of how that will work. Well, let's we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, Dr. Mullen, when, when uh, Rob Thomas
0: was just talking about Uh, how policing is done in housing complexes. You had something really interesting to tell me about your experiences growing up in the Watts section of Los Angeles at the time uh, of unrest there. Some uh, Some of the most historic unrest we've ever seen in this country. And you talked about the Black Panthers playing a role back then in terms of an alternative. Can you talk about what my initial question around defunding, your thoughts around that, but then address your experiences with the in growing up in Watts and how you think that can play into community policing today in our public housing complexes.
3: It's interesting that you remembered that. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, The first thing, for me defunding, I I agree with my colleagues, but for me defunding is that as a a taxpayer in Asheville, that I'm not paying for something that I am receiving unsatisfactory services. I, I have a very serious problem with paying for something that, and for example, what I saw for with, with the police response, APD's response to the protesters, I don't want to pay for that. Um, when I see the militarization that's happening with the police, I don't want to pay for that. And so defunding for me says, we're taking a hard look at how you're using our tax dollars. But for, for the Black Panthers, you see, when... When Watts exploded in 1965, I was a kid, you know, so I'm watching it. But I'm also watching my older brother coming back from Vietnam. I I remember my other brother getting ready to go to Vietnam. And um, I remember uh, LAPD and the National Guard camped out on our our, our front lawn. I, I remember all that. And I also remember after things settled down a bit, how calm and safe Watts was because you see the Black Panthers had stepped in and these were all community guys. Everybody knew all the Black Panthers. Um, That was, they were not strangers to the community. And it was the one time I remember in Watts, there were no pimps, there were no hustlers, there was no drug, drug sales were not happening. The streets were clean. People were observing curfew, even though LAPD had no presence because they were seen as being antagonistic. And folk really did not like the police for very good reasons. I and mean, I remember being stopped by them, and and you know going home from school. No, you can't do that. Uh, and so the public safety, my public safety idea is rooted in, I know it can work because I've seen it. So <laughs> along those lines, and I want to open this to
0: all three of you. Advocates talk of defunding, you know, broadly and diverting resources to de-escalation, right? But what happens? When someone refuses to leave an area where, you you know, they need to leave and they refuse to leave. When someone needs to be put into custody and they won't go without a fight. What happens then under these new models that we're talking about?
3: Let me put a a thing on the table. Please do. Is is that when folk resisted and were clearly wrong. Let me give an example. Someone got drunk and uh, was carrying on on the street. I remember, I remember before they became the Black Panthers, they were, there was a group on, in Watts called the Sons of Watts. And the Sons of Watts, I remember approaching these guys, these, these guys that we used to call winos, you know, sitting on the corner, and they were getting a little out rambunctious. And I remember them sitting there and talking to them, and it turned out that it really wasn't what it looked like. It wasn't, it, it didn't look, it wasn't the disturbance of the peace. It was the style of conversation. That the Panthers understood that the Sons of Watts understood, and they joined in rather than question and arrest him
0: so are you suggesting then that some of the situations in which currently where people resist law enforcement, whether leaving an area or want to uh, don't want to be arrested, who does want to be arrested so you're suggesting that under situations that you're talking about, under a more of a community policing model, that these situations would that people would be more willing to go into custody or to leave an area where they're not wanted?
2: Well, Rob, what do you think? I I, I definitely have a statement. Yeah, yeah, I I fully agree with everything what Dr. Mullen said to where is growing up in said neighborhoods, I've seen several instances diffuse that we, you know, we lived on not calling the police when I was growing up. You know, I've seen this work to where it is, if this is your, this is a neighborhood grandmother, an uncle, an aunt, like their family, you know these individuals. You also know things about this individual that the police officer wouldn't know. You know how to come at this individual. You know, you know a lot more and implicit bias isn't playing a role. And then police officers have this, you know, they're coming into this environment that's been deemed a high crime environment. And so, you know, in their training, they used to have to memorize these areas, how to get to them. So that already throws a red flag, right? So you have this officer showing up this tense, expecting a situation. And then on the other side, you've got this community member that is also afraid. So you've got two individuals that are afraid of each other, that don't know each other. Like it's a bad situation waiting to happen whereas if you implement community policing and and peacekeepers, like you have that a lot less. There's always gonna be um, some issues, right? That like, we can't negate that. There are always gonna be some issues. Um, but I'd, I am willing to bet that we would see uh, the rates get better. The disparities look a lot better. The, um, the use of force, individuals being arrested. Because uh, a lot of what happens with police in my eyes it's not even what's legal because they have so much, uh, you know, so much wiggle room and gray area around what's legal. It's, I look at it like, is this necessary? Like, what's that even necessary? You Zarya, know,
0: Zaria, you had mentioned to me that you felt that police officers are acculturated to view people um, with money as a priority for protection and that they've abandoned the responsibility to, quote, protect all. And that gets to what we're talking about here in terms of where community-level policing comes in versus what you were t- what we're seeing today is uh, more of a government-focused, government-centered, and employed police department. How do you see this manifesting in our city in terms of that it's not about protecting all from your vantage? Explain that a little bit.
1: So... I just want to kind of uh, go back on like what Mr. or Dr. Mullen, as well as Rob, was saying, where their de-escalation taxa- ta- tactics are are deemed th- they're not on the same playing field, especially when considering that there is a certain authorita- uh, authoritating um aspect at play as well in regards to how how much power the police hold on a legal standpoint as well as the fact that those who have to follow the law it would make more sense to have somebody who knows the community who has that connection with the community and are able to de-escalate a, a situation in a way where they are not ha- where they are not in a sense of fear uh, going back to what you were saying in regards to um, l- protecting all, that is not necessarily the case because I'm going to go based off of a study that has been done a couple years ago in regards to the viewpoint of the police in regards to people of color. The standpoint that most police have is that, and this is kind of going off of a building block that police have just done historically. Going just, it, it has progressed on top of another without the reformation that is needed to take place. Yes, there has been civil rights laws passed and legislative passed. However, the fact of the matter is, is that there is a general understanding or there is a perception that black people immediately have something bad to do, or they themselves are in a position where they themselves um, are being, they're being perceived in a way or they have, or a said individual or police officer have has an, immediately a misconception when viewing the people on the street.
0: You just touched on something that I think is at the heart of what people are protesting, that there's a systemic undercurrent of racism happening within policing, and that that cannot be eradicated under current, the way policing is done today. Am I correct in how you, all three of you, see that? And, and if that's true, and we bring in a community policing model, does power in itself corrupt? If we put people, even from the community, in positions of power, is, there, is it inevitable that there will be assumptions made that there will be that power in itself, having that will lead to a corrupting force.
3: Matt, you're getting to the heart of it. Is that the nature of democracy is this whole question of can we govern ourselves or must we be governed? And for me, there's no question about that, is that the corrupting influence of power is always countered by the purifying influence, I think, of majority will. And and, and and of course, you, you temper it with protection of rights and all that. But the corruption of the community, I think, is a less likelihood than the history of corruption that I've seen in law enforcement. Your thoughts, Robert, on that? I fully agree. I really couldn't say
2: any better than what Dr. Mullins just did. Honestly, um, I would like to throw out there a study that kind of showed and proved the, the biases with, within here in Asheville. If you look at the traffic stop data before written consent was implemented to where it is a large amount of African-Americans were stopped and a small portion of said amount of Americans, the black Americans that were stopped, were actually found to uh, have contraband on them, Whereas a smaller number of white Americans were stopped and they actually possessed a larger percentage of them that had contraband on them. Like the numbers were terrible um, and they had been terrible for a while. Matter of fact, they wouldn't even keep in, records of it for a while, like this had been going on. And I understand it, it's deeper than that, like the training with the stop and frisk, it's, it's really deep. Um, why that happened. But the thing about it is, it happened.
0: You mentioned uh, traffic stops. And I do want to point out, and I was going to bring this up later when we talked to our professionals in law enforcement, that uh, there was a recent two-year study conducted by the uh, journalism watchdog group called AVL Watchdog. And that of all calls that police made over this two-year period, the number one category of those calls at 23% was traffic. It doesn't go into break down any details beyond that, but traffic was the number one call of all categories. Also, uh, this is another study in a three-year period between 2009, 2012, of all deaths at the hands of police in 17 states, the National Institute of Health found that the fatality rate was 2.8 times higher for Black victims than for whites. And in the same study, Black victims were more likely to be unarmed at 14.8% than white victims. So we're going to talk about that when we have our law enforcement panel. Lily, are you seeing anything uh, from comments or questions uh, from our viewing audience?
1: The viewing audience is really interested in talking about... um, how to build trust within communities and what that would look like in a different system or even within the current policing system. Um, Could you all talk a little bit more about the
0: the solutions that you're thinking about? Around building trust specifically. Yes. Zaria, can you talk to that a little bit? What do you believe would go a long way toward building trust between people who are charged with public safety and the community who is that public?
1: Well, I would just like to state, and I'm going to refer back to Rob's current resolution that was passed, that those community-based committees are crucial because those are, the, those are the immediate individuals who they interact on a day-to-day basis. Those are the ones in which they are able to have an imme- like a direct conversation rather, as opposed to just getting a forced and or a um, just demanded a way to go about life. So when having those immediate conversations, those direct conversations with those set committees, it is easier for to get a general understanding of said committee or set uh, communities understanding of where they want to see their safety in terms of like getting a, a broader aspect like it is a harder, it's harder for the sheriff uh, department and or, office, or police department to grasp that general understanding because they are, they are not the ones who are uh, interacting with those individuals on a day-to-day basis. They may know s- specific individuals, however, they themselves are not interacting on, with every single individual on a day-to-day basis. However, those committees could be the ones to do so. Thank
0: you for that, Zaria. For those just tuning in, I am Matt Pykin with Blue Ridge Public Radio, and you're watching BPR Presents, Policing in Asheville, a community forum. And we're going to turn right now to our law enforcement professionals. And both of these guests have worked in law enforcement for about as long as each other. And just briefly, uh, Quentin Miller was born and raised in Asheville, served with the Asheville Police Department from 1994 to 2018 when he was elected to his first term as Buncombe County Sheriff. And Rondell Lance was raised in the Inca Candler area, started in the Asheville Police Department in 1988, spent 26 years on the force, and has been retired for five years, but is going on his 24th year as president of the Fraternal Order of Police. I'm very happy uh, that you both joined us tonight. Thank you for that. You've heard our first guests regarding defunding of police and their steps they they see as solutions. I want to ask both of you to respond to what you heard, but also more broadly to why you believe, each of you believe, we've reached a place where our guests and so many people protesting around the country believe the only option is to take money away from law enforcement and put it into other areas i want to ask you first sheriff miller
4: to respond to that good evening so i think before i start i think that uh a couple of things one uh i must comment on the defunding piece and i must uh, ensure that the listeners and viewers understand that there's a difference between the sheriff's office and the police department the sheriff is actually uh, responsible for the detention center he's also responsible for the courts and civil process and we have a total of 64 people who are actually working on patrol so when we start talking about the funding for me i start looking at the detention center and uh part of that for me starts saying um a few things one you know i've heard people say that you know the sheriff's office budget was increased And I would like people to look at that and where, you know, what was increased. And I think they're fine that, you know, the the healthcare for, I call people incarcerated clients, and I'm sure some have heard me say that before. So please understand when I say clients, you know, we're talking about inmates, if you will, but I choose to call them clients. So the healthcare for the clients um, increased, and that was uh, increased about $400,000 that was increased. And some of that is the medical care that they receive, Uh, of course, the food and housing, all that goes into that, you know, that that space. And so that was, uh, the increase was something that was actually, uh, I'm gonna tell you unavoidable. Uh, We did negotiate a better, in my opinion, a better contract that we're talking about how many people that are incarcerated. And then that would then, predicate uh increase if we get to right now it's like 320 330 people that's incarcerated and prior to COVID that number was 570 580 we were uh, getting very close to capacity which is 604 so as long as the numbers stay down and when I say the numbers stay down the clients you know that enables us to be able to do other things for us programming and you know we're doing things within the uh, detention center, as far as, you know, medical assisted treatment for folks who are there who are, I call it a sickness, and some of you may have heard me say that too, about the substance abuse. I believe a lot of it is a sickness, along with the fact that uh, we got to also look at mental health. And so I've said this, and I'll say it again, that uh, a lot of services that we're able to assist our clients with. While the incarcerated give us the opportunity, that is when, in my opinion, they need to be helped. Because at some point, I think this is the time when they are they are most sober, if you will. A lot of that would speak to that for is uh, the funding, and I would you know be resistant. One part of that is because of if we cut back on the medical assistance that we're rendering in there, that would be a challenge for me. In addition to that, I'm gonna move to our courts. Where again, the sheriff is responsible for the courts, you know, security courthouse. We also have to serve civil papers, right? So a lot of things. I do hear the outcry, if you will, for defunding. I'm interested in having the conversation. I'll give uh, Mr. Lance opportunity to speak.
0: Sure, I do want. I do want to point out though that everything you're talking about, and as laudable as some of those those efforts are, they all are happening once someone is in custody. And I think what a lot of people are protesting about is everything that leads up to getting into custody. And the deaths that have happened and some of the violence that has happened on our citizens and citizens around the country, And I think that has been visible to people. It's before anybody ever goes into incarceration. So I just want to point out the difference so, there. I so, hear you about funding pr- the funding of programs that are designed to help the people you call this clients. I I totally understand that, but I just want to draw that distinction.
4: So what I would also tell you is, you know, my platform was talking about a community of we. And when I sp- speak to you about the community of we, we talk about how do we change the mindset from that of warriors to guardians, you know, from intimidators to protectors, And we have to get out of the mindset of us versus them. So, by all means, you know this is not just a one piece of a conversation. I just want people to understand when we start talking about defunding, what that really means for the sheriff, right? But when we, uh, I would have to agree. I'm gonna go ahead and talk on it because you've kind of led me into it now. I think if we really want to have a conversation, I think we have to have a conversation when we're gonna be honest, and when we start being honest, I think you know. I've said before, these conversations were hurt. And when I say hurt, you know, I will tell you that when I looked at the, you know, incident in Minneapolis, you know, I came out, I made my statement that you know, we couldn't condone that type of behavior nor would we condone the behavior of people uh, unpeaceful protests, if you will. And I've also said I'm in support of people protesting as long as it's peaceful. And again, when we start talking about how do we go about doing it, It is about building relationships. It is about building trust with our communities. And, you know, for me, I've been in Nashville. I'm born and raised in Nashville. I spent, you know, my 11 years in the military. When I come back, when I spent my time in the Asheville Police Department, you know, I spent the times in these communities of color, if you will. And, um, you know, I would like to think that I did build trust in, uh, you know, relationships, you know, with folks that uh, lived in these outlined areas, if you will. But also I wanna be uh, clear that I wanna talk about how we, we, we talk about a duty to intervene from law enforcement. I think we also gotta talk about this community uh, response today, They meaning our community has to be a part of us and our community has a duty to intervene. And some of that intervention is the protest. So when we uh, have these conversations, I'm, I'm ready to listen, I'm ready to talk, I'm ready to do whatever's needed to make this move along. But I don't want us to have this conversation and these other things that's going on without us actually making something happen, you know, with where we are. In other words, I've been here in law enforcement over 30 plus years. And I, I go back to uh, Rodney King. You know, for us who are old enough to remember that, we remember the type of, uh, I'm gonna call it a beating, because that's what it was, right? And we, you know, we felt the changes were made and we would never be here again. Some 30 years later, we're there again. And so I'm just saying, for me, his uh, beating, if you will, was in vain if we're not willing and ready to make a step. Rondell Lance, thank you so much for your patience and
0: thank you again for joining us tonight. You uh, have heard what our guests had talked about earlier around their concepts of defunding. I want to ask you. The same question I asked uh, Sheriff Miller, both where your thoughts are around what they said and why you believe we've reached this place where people are asking for this, regardless of the rationale behind it or the specifics or lack thereof around defunding, why we've reached this place from your vantage.
5: Well, why we reached it is it could be a big, long discussion. But if you say we need funding for these other programs, I want the people to understand why all of a sudden they want to take the money from police, not from not uh, go to the legislators, ask for more money, not do take the money from somewhere else, they want to take it from police. So this is a national narrative that's put across the country it 's not something that K People Nice will just come up with or somewhere else it's a national narrative to try to demonize and tear down law enforcement. If you need funding, go to your legislators. Go somewhere else. But you notice they're not asking for funding for these programs. Their biggest issue is take it from the police. And the biggest talking point that is they're being used, but we're not going to defund. We're going to reallocate the money somewhere else. People know that's the exact same thing as defunding. You've got programs, great programs in Buncombe County. Buncombe County is probably one of the best as far as having programs, social networks. So it's not about trying to help those programs. There are plenty of money for those programs, but notice what the narrative is. Take it from the police. Take, and it's all about tearing down law enforcement, tearing down law and order in in our uh, city. And that's my opinion because you take away funding, you're taking away programs that law enforcement officers need to help the community. You're taking away training for law enforcement. You're taking away modern equipment. They want us to have cameras and everything on. That costs money. We want good officers. You've got to be able to pay those officers. You've got to to provide them the equipment to do a better job for the community. You want these officers to go through this training. All that costs money and the money's there. So why take money away? You're going to uh, harm your community more because the, the police officers will not be able to do the programs. We've done programs in every housing complex, every community We have picnics, we feed, we take, we do programs. I've been involved in them. Sheriff Miller, I've worked with him on programs. Law enforcement is making an effort to reach out. So I don't want the people, for my opinion, this narrative of defunding police is just a national talking point being used by people that want to destroy law and order, destroy and demonize law
0: enforcement. I, I can see where people who want to take money away from law enforcement because they believe law enforcement isn't serving their role in protecting the community but i think that's different than wanting to to tear away the idea of law enforcement that they want their communities in anarchy or chaos i don't think that's true i think i think you can be critical of law enforcement. And one of your tools can be money. It might not be a sound strategy. It might be a sound strategy. But to, to lump that in and say that they want to tear down the idea of law enforcement in our community, I, I don't think you really believe that people just want open chaos on the streets,
5: do you? Well, I appreciate your opinion and you thinking what I think. But yes, I do. This group that's pushing this, which is only 2 or 3% of the people, but some people do. Some people want law enforcement, uh, demonized. They, won't, they do not want law and order. That's a small percentage, but they are the ones that are saying defund the police. Let's do this and do that. 73% of the nation, the last poll that I read, were against defunded police. You've got a small narrative of people who are, they're not concerned about these programs, about social networking listen to their narrative. It's all, we're concerned about them if we can take the money from the police. It is, it's is—it's ridiculous. It makes no sense to even discuss discussing during the turmoil that we're facing. Defunding the police does nothing at all to help the relationship in our community. It does nothing at all to bring peace or understanding. It's a talking point by a small percentage of people that want to demonize and, and law enforcement And not only here, because it's across the nation narrative. That's why it should be so clear what this narrative and where it's coming from.
0: You spoke to me about how you used the word ridiculous to uh, suggest that crisis intervention specialists and other people be sent in instead of law, armed law enforcement officers to certain calls. Uh, you, and you also spoke of the levels of training police go through in handling a variety of situations they encounter. Can you elaborate on your position of why armed officers are required to do traffic enforcement and other seemingly nonviolent situations?
5: Matt, what you're saying is true. I didn't say it's ridiculous, but yet what was the example I used? It's three o'clock in the morning husband has beat up wife, he's come home drunk, beat up wife, kids are crying, mama's crying, windows are broken out, that would be ridiculous to send in someone besides law enforcement. Because I've done it for 26 and a half years. You go in there, and if he has just a regular uh, uh, social workers who are great people, and I love them to death, we work with them all the time, hand in hand. They come in his house at three in the morning. You think he's just going to act different for them than he would if law enforcement come in? So when you said I said it was ridiculous, you have to make the, help the radio audience understand, Matt, that I meant it's ridiculous in certain situations because we work hand-in-hand hand with our local social workers. We have officers that are trained in critical incident training taught by our local social workers, and they train us. It's a week's training, and they tell their clients, look for officers with that badge, little button that they wear on their clothes. And A lot of times, if we get in a situation, and it's calm enough. We'll call and say, "Hey, have you got someone that you can send out to talk to this person?" We've been doing that for years. We are trained in it. Our crisis negotiation team is trained in Florida for eighty hours how to handle these situations. And when you what you refer to, Matt, it is ridiculous to send social workers in at three or four o'clock in the morning into a volatile situation. That's
0: what I was talking about. I, uh, yes. And I was giving you the opportunity to clarify. That's why I, I turned <laughs> to you for that. Sheriff Miller, uh, Officer Rondell uh, Lance just said something that you commented on to me as well. And without my prompting, you suggested that law enforcement officers are taking on a far greater and more demanding variety of situations than you did as an officer 15 or 20 years ago. And you also suggested that officers don't receive enough training for this. What do you believe needs to happen to change this dynamic?
4: Well, I did say, and I will say again tonight, that policing has changed from when I first started, when Rondell first started. And the request that uh, we're asking of our officers today is not really what the request was years ago. What I mean by that is, we're now responding to situations when, you know, we have people with mental health issues, substance abuse issues. And, you know, I can respect what Rondell has said about the CIT training. But for me, I want us to have more training, you know, and that would speak to, you know, how do we get this training? Because again, it costs money. I get that. But again, uh, I think we're placing our, officers, deputies in situations and we haven't prepared them or provided them the necessary tools to, you know, one, evaluate the situation, handle the situation. I don't want us to, you know, get off track when we start thinking about, you know, these different situations that uh, Rondell has spoke about. I would hope if you show up at a house, you know, with that type of situation that he described that you would have law enforcement because the, the situation he described that I heard, it's an unsafe situation. So I wouldn't put someone with mental health in that situation until we can get that situation safe. But I still believe mental health folks should be there because once I get it safe, then I would ask that, you know, someone who has a higher level of training to be present to assist us in it. And now, in my opinion, that was cut back on our use of force issues. For me, it's about the training. It's about the communication. The reason I appreciate, you know, this type of forum is because we must understand that law enforcement, we got a lens that we look through. And I would tell you that if we had the solutions, we'd have been done it. You know, so we need our community to assist us in figuring out, you know, looking through a different lens. And what that may look like, you know, uh, we may not like it from law enforcement. The community may not like it. But well, we have to sit down and have the conversations to see where we're going. We are part of the community. We're not separated. We're not warriors. We're not trying to occupy our communities. We're part of our communities.
0: Well, I do want to point out, before I turn to Zaria Abdul-Karim with her comment or question, that, and you told me yourself, that uh, Sheriff Miller, that the high cost of living in this area means many of our officers do not live in Asheville. That, yeah. That's factual. Right. So, so when we're talking about people policing their communities, that we're all in this community, I think you can take a more finely uh, fine look at that and see where residents does come into play with some of the officers and and how they behave on the job.
4: This is part of the reason why I say or have said that we have to have our community help hire our officers. Zaria,
1: I do have a question for Mr. Rondell. So, when you say The narrative. I want a little bit of more clarity as to what you mean by that, because there's a general understanding that police brutality is a significant issue within the U.S. as well as in other countries. It's not a matter of whether an us versus them situation. It's a matter of whether our communities can band together to make sure that we are keeping each other safe. So I'm, I'm just wanting a little bit more clarity. I'm hoping I can just grasp what you mean.
5: Thank you for the question. Yeah, what I'm talking about is that phrase of defund the police. It's not encompassing what needs to be done, the steps to be taken. It's a national narrative. of We've got problems, so let's take money away from the people that can help solve the problem. And that, that is, to me, makes no sense at all.
1: may i just state really quickly that those funding that you're talking about are tax paying dollars that we pay for so when we're talking and as someone who has protested and who has been in the streets i would just like to say that the unnecessary amount of militarization that has gone through that has that we have faced as individuals when there was peaceful protesting And nobody was enforcing any any one individual to antagonize the police. We're just wanting to get our statement across. So, and I hope that there is an understanding as well that that is what this forum is for—to grasp that understanding amongst each other as well. What we're what we are suggesting are alternatives to what you are saying as a general narrative.
5: Can I comment just quickly?
1: Sure, Rondell.
5: I like the statement that she made was. We pay taxes, we don't like what's going on. I pay taxes. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other people pay taxes and they don't agree with what's going on or agree with her narrative.
0: That still then becomes a policy question, right? So people who pay taxes who feel one way, people Mm -hmm. who pay taxes who feel another way, they debate in the public square. In this case, it's protests around the country because people who feel they don't have a voice in government or taking to the streets to be heard as a collective because they feel powerless otherwise. That's how they're getting their policy positions out there. Police are coming from, and people who are supporting police are coming from a different vantage. They have different vehicles, to get their voices known. They don't necessarily need to take to the streets. They are already perhaps in positions of power and they have money and other resources. So I I, I don't think it's a that it's a national narrative that's necessarily just being copied and rubber stamped in various cities. I think well, so, you know, everybody- I
5: Matt, I do. I think it is being copied across, we can see it. It's being copied across the city. It's being rubber stamped across the nation.
2: Rob, I want to turn to you. I know you wanted to say something, Rob. Ooh, I, would, I would like to say a lot. I'm, I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible. First, to Mr. Rundell saying that, you know, we've demonized the police. And this also equates to the question, how do you heal the relationship? You can't heal what hasn't been revealed. To whereas individuals such as Mr. Rundell Lance uphold the narrative to where police are, you know, this great organization that has always been great. And it's like, you look at the history, you know, after 1865, when slavery ended and how it started out as slave patrols and how it evolved and kept that same culture within it. And we have the same culture embedded in America to where systemic racism, institutional racism and structural racism are extreme issues within our society. And you're talking about healing somebody's mind, changing somebody's mind inside of an organization that exists inside of a corporation. Like, that's impossible without changing. That's like trying to heal the fish, and he's, if the fish is in poison water, and then you throw the fish back in the poison water. It doesn't work like that. Secondly, to defunding the police, him saying like this purely about trying to destroy policing. And like, no, that that isn't necessarily it. We don't want chaos, we don't want anarchy. What we want to do is start building the new house, you know, before we tear down this old house that has never served the whole population as a whole and has so many issues within it. If we can go ahead and start looking into and getting the alternatives implemented and looking at the metrics that we receive from implementing these alternatives, And measuring progress and seeing how that's being done, while you know divesting from the police and investing in the community, we can see a difference. We can see some transformation. But the way that the policing organization is instituted and structured, like it's a monster. You've got the civil service board. You've got uh, you've got laws. You've got you've got all these different policies that provide gray areas and loopholes for things that we can see on camera and view and say that is completely. Ridiculous and unnecessary. And then once it goes through the court system and goes through the, you know, through the justice system, it's like the officer is found to be justified because the officer feared for their life or, you know, the officer thought the individual had a weapon or so many other instances to whereas we're not looking at what's necessary and what's unnecessary and holding the officer accountable and changing the policy immediately. That's not happening. If that was happening, then maybe we could we could change this. But that's that's not the case. We don't even have the tools to hold officers accountable. It's, it, you know how hard it is for the police chief to hold the officer accountable? A police chief can fire an officer and if, and if the police chief fires this officer without following the policy and regulations that he has to follow in doing so with the gray areas and loopholes in it, then the Civil Service Board can hire said officer back. Like, we, he can't even really hold him accountable. We don't have the ability to view footage like that is just so many different things that is wrong to where we're like okay let us start working on some alternatives you know we don't want to get rid of police all at once maybe we don't want chaos we don't want crime we want the opposite and there are proven methods and proven alternatives that have already been implemented in other cities with beautiful metrics and the way you're doing things is not working these nine officers in public housing Crime has not decreased. Gun violence has not decreased. It's actually risen if you look at the metrics. And you're talking about putting more officers in there. That's not the solution, obviously. Let me ask, based on things that Rob Thomas just talked about,
0: Sheriff Mill, you talked about the uh, need for an open, honest, sometimes painful community conversation. Is there an undercurrent of racism in the culture of policing? If you say no to that, And millions of people protesting around the country insist there is. How can our community have that open, honest, and transparent conversation you speak of when those two sides can't agree on the
4: central tenet of what people are protesting? Sheriff Miller. When we start looking at law enforcement as a whole, I think one thing is very important for me is that we get categorized, right? And when I mean categorized, we try to put everybody in this one one basket, if you will. I would tell you that there are some great police officers, great deputies out here that's doing the work every day. But like anyone else, you know, we have our bad apples. There's a few that, you know, we need to, um, you know, look at closer. But I think the narrative has been, how do we sit down and do it? If we're not going to acknowledge that we have a few bad apples, we're not operating from a good place. From the beginning.
0: But again, and I want to turn to Rondell Lance for this about something that came up, that when we're uh, talking about re- getting to the real and having those real conversations and the protesters are insistent and drawing back the curtain on history to what they see as systemic racism within law enforcement, and that as Rob Thomas said, you can't throw a fish back into a poison water and expect it to swim and live. Okay, so using that metaphor, if you as law enforcement leaders say there is no systemic racism, there's bad apples, as you, Sheriff Miller, said, but there is no systemic racism, how can the conversation even move to the next square when? There's such diametrically opposed views at square one. Rondell Lance, I want to turn to some of the reforms you did talk to me about that you think the police union would want to adopt. So let's go first to that systemic racism issue.
5: Systemic racism. Different people have different definitions of what that entails. And you said they're drawing back the curtains of history. Everybody knows the history. There's no drawing back the curtains of history that something's been hid. Everybody knows history. We're all intelligent people here. We've all been to college. We've all been to school. We know history. So nobody's drawing back the curtains of history that has been hid. I know last year, they on average, an officer's killed every 53 hours in the United States. FBI in 2018, 58,866 officers were assaulted. 18,005 officers injured. Officers are committing suicide. So I'm concerned also. I'm concerned about the officers that are being shot and killed and assaulted. And my concern as president of the FOP is seeing my brothers and sisters in law enforcement being killed across the United States. It's not all one side. It's both sides. and It's going to take sitting down with people that are willing to have open minds and discuss the issues.
0: You mentioned history. You said everybody knows the history. And I want to turn to Dr. Mullen who has studied this history deeply as professor of political science. And I, I'm going to raise the question, from your vantage, does our society at large
3: know the history? I think the difference is so dramatic until sitting down and having a conversation about it is probably not going to work. You know, And the reason why I say that is that you know we, we faced this in the last couple of years of the Obama administration with the number of police killings that were videotaped, and not prosecuted or officers not uh, uh, convicted for crimes that were pretty obvious when you looked at it. The idea of reforming the police to me, I, I just don't see that working. However, I do see some of the alternatives that were thought of then in that the Department of Justice came out with all kinds of recommendations and guidelines for the reforming of police as they found them in Chicago and Cleveland and Atlanta and Los Angeles and New York. I mean, and, and I would think that that could be the beginning of a conversation here in Asheville. That's only the beginning of the conversation. I think that that's a holdover until we as a community decide what is public safety and how that can be constructed out of replacing this thing that I don't see working at, in, in terms of being reformed yet again.
0: Rondell Lance, you'd mentioned to me about some reforms that among them you mentioned eliminating the measurement of an officer's performance by the number of tickets they write. And that this is a particular pressure point for officers working in public housing complexes. You you stopped short of calling it a quota. I asked you, is there a quota? You said no. But by the same token, you said they are. There's this measurement. You'd like to see that changed. Can you elaborate on that and other reforms you think are workable within the current construct of law enforcement.
5: And I've been saying this for years. A law enforcement officer is judged so often by how many arrests you make, how many people you put in jail. And that means you're a good officer. Uh, we had a, a called augment that we'd work downtown for extra money on our days off. I would go downtown, talk to people from all over the country, talk to people at Pritchard Park. But at the end of the shift. My lieutenant will know how many tickets I wrote or how many people I put in jail, and I'd say, "Well, none." And I was told, "If you don't, if you want to keep working augment, you need to write tickets and show stats." And the same thing happened when we were uh, since 1998. actual police department has been inside our housing complexes, full four force, two at a time. We got a housing team, and when you worked housing team, also for extra money, you were gauged whether you can work it by how many tickets you wrote. Now, I could go into Pisca View and D-Review and spend all day talking to kids, playing ball, but if I didn't put nothing down, that wasn't considered good enough. Did you not write a ticket? Did you not make an arrest? Same thing downtown. I worked downtown, was on the bike team, and we'd talk to people, but if we didn't make arrests, we was viewed as, as we didn't do our job. That mindset has to change, and I think a lot of that was what Sheriff Miller, when he ran, addressed we use different terminology. I, I, you know, We need to be more, more peace officers than we are enforcement officers. And law enforcement don't want to be out here writing tickets and enforcing law. You have to go to court on your day off. You stand, uh, you know, complain on. We would love to be, if you want us in a housing complexes? don't judge us by how many tickets we wrote. Judge us by how many people we talked to, how many houses we sat down and talked to. So that's a major change across our nation, I think, that has to be done in law enforcement, especially in this day and time.
0: I think right there, um, you've hit on something that I think probably there would be unanimity, I I imagine, among our panelists here. Uh, Zarya, you had a, a question or comment?
1: So I keep hearing that we need to have a broader conversation around racism. Racism does exist. Racism does exist on the basis of police, especially since the beginning of police was based on the fact that they were supposed to be slave catchers.
5: No, you're totally wrong. It started in France. I've got, it started in England. Up north in up America. North, up north of in America. Yeah, but we took it from England. And up north in America, they were not uh, so many slaves up there as there were in the South. But you don't think they didn't have law enforcement up there? Law enforcement in the North wasn't to capture slaves. So that's a false narrative. Let's say law enforcement.
0: Let's ask our, our history of professor, Dr. Dwight Mullen. And not yeah, that we're going to solve you, this in one.
3: That's in- what he said, Matt. The origins of the police departments in the Northeast and in the South were two different origins. The origins in the North were definitely out of England, out of Europe, and they followed those township models. The policing out of the South was absolutely predicated on slave militias. And that enforcement of the code was done locally. And it was was always enforced with the idea of law and order meant the control of Black people. That's what it meant. And it hasn't changed.
0: Rob, you have a... Question, Rob Thomas.
3: Yes, I
2: mean, the issue is is very clear here, right? Where is you have an officer who is defensive, and you know, I'm not too much for taking up for law enforcement, but you can see the difference in Quentin Miller's responses and Mr. Lance's responses. It's hard for me to view like bad apples and good apples because, say, like you, Mr. Lance, you were in police force for what, 32 years, I think. So you're telling me within those 32 years, you never witnessed any type of police brutality, any type of wrongdoing by other officers. And how many, if you did, how many of those officers did you uh, write formal complaints on and get something done about them?
5: Oh, quite a few. I've had officers come to me, had been in trouble, and I said, the best thing for you to do is, is to get out of law enforcement. You don't need to be in this job. I've addressed that issue with officers my whole career. And I prided myself on doing it and doing it the right way. And I've had to, as a sergeant, I've had people come to me and, and uh, complain. And i told them that uh, the officer was wrong in their actions, but I also also strongly defend them when they were right in their actions. So as FOP president, I've had them come to me say, hey, I've got caught doing this or I've been complaining about this. Can you help me? And I've said, no, you've lied. You've done things that shouldn't have been done. The best thing for you to do is to quit. Nobody wants." Great law enforcement, professional law enforcement, more than other law enforcement officers. And we do not like, cannot stand a law enforcement officer that go out, abuses their authority, abuses people. We will call them out and have many times. The city has terminated many people for that reason. Police are held accountable. And that's part of the discussion I think that we need to have is, is accountability that police have. What we have to go through be accountable for from your supervisor all the way to the FBI, Department of Justice, the courts, the federal courts, everything we do is scrutinized.
0: I wanna turn to Lily has a question or comment from our Facebook audience, Lily.
1: I'll direct this to Mr. Thomas um, about if it's possible for um, the total abolishment of the police and uh, how you would do that and what that would look like.
2: The total abolishment of the police I'm of the mindset that anything is possible, right? It's about how you do it. We would have to have st- structures created to replace the things that have been thrown on the backs of the police officers already. That's a pot, like if we just completely destroyed the police department today with no alternative, I can't necessarily say I agree with that. But I do think that it is possible over a span of time if we do it the correct way and replace it with said alternatives. Because right now what we have is a structure that was built in sand, you know, and I would rather build a structure that is, and has a concrete foundation. But like I say, that would that would
4: take time. Sheriff Miller. I can't speak for Mr. Thomas, right? What we're talking about is fair and equal policing. I don't know that we're saying total defunding the policing. that's something he would have to answer or the chaos and whatnot, but what we are after is fair and equal treatment across all walks of uh, the people we serve. There is something wrong with the system, right? You know, some of the challenges I think we in law enforcement really have is when are we really ready to have an honest conversation and to take ownership, and the reason I say ownership, we as law enforcement have a part of it, so does our community, but I'm here to tell you that law enforcement alone cannot solve the issues that that exist today.
0: You've been listening to BPR News Presents, a community conversation on policing in Asheville. I'd like to thank our guests Zaria Abdul-Karim, Rob Thomas, Dr. Dwight Mullen, Buncombe County Sheriff Quentin Miller, and Rondell Lance, president of the local chapter of the Fraternal Order of Police. This conversation happened July 23rd over Facebook Live, and you can watch and listen to the entire two-hour video on the Blue Ridge Public Radio Facebook page. I'm Matt Pikin Thank you for listening.